Well, good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Thank you for being here at Veritas. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, We are very glad that you're here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to start with reading uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Matthew 5, 1 through 12 here in a few moments. When you walked in this morning, you received a bulletin. Inside of that bulletin is uh, what we call a connect card. Uh, That's a good way for us to get connected with you and and learn a little bit more about you and know how we can uh, um, maybe get together, grab a cup of coffee, grab lunch, have you over for dinner. Uh, And also, uh, it's a good way for us to know how we can be praying for you. So there's a little space on uh, one side for prayer requests. We'd love to be able to pray for you uh, this week. And so, whoopsie, please take a moment and and, uh, and fill that out so that we can get connected with you and be in prayer for you this week. Um, okay, uh, well, we are in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. We are beginning a six-month sermon series in Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount until the last Sunday of November. Okay, and, and, and what we need to learn about the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to try to cover some things this morning. Uh, one thing that we need to know about the Sermon on the Mount is it's, it's actually the first of five lengthy sermons or discourses uh, from Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. Okay, so Matthew's gospel is a story about Jesus. Um, It's the story of Jesus' life, his miracles, his teaching, his betrayal, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension and sending of the church. Uh, And in the midst of the story, Matthew kind of moves in and out of these five sermons, these five discourses from Jesus. You'll see this kind of pattern as you read through the body of Matthew. Uh, You'll see some healings and miracles, and then a sermon. Some healings and miracles, and then a sermon. Some healings and miracles, and then a sermon, and, and, and so on. And the miracles and these healings are Matthew's way of saying, look, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, come to save us. He has all authority. Look, even the elements, demons, the created order, sicknesses, all things are in the created order are subject to him. And this is why you ought to heed and submit to his authoritative teaching. And then he, he provides Jesus' authoritative teaching five times. And then at the end, Matthew concludes with the Great Commission. He says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, he's talking about these five sermons, these five teachings, these very sermons recorded in in Matthew. In the first of these sermons, probably the most influential of these sermons, probably the one that most clearly represents who Jesus is and what he came to do, is the Sermon on the Mount. If, If ever Jesus had a messianic manifesto, this is the one. This is it. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto. Therefore, it's very, very important. This is, this is what we are sent out into the world to learn, to teach, and to learn, to obey. Uh, this, this, is the, this is the stuff here that we are to learn and obey. 
And therefore, it's very important that we understand the sermon, that we interpret it rightly, that we apply it faithfully to our lives. This is the teaching that we are to observe as Jesus' disciples. And that's why we're going to spend the next six months wrestling with it, trying to understand it. There are some difficult sayings from Jesus here. And so we want to learn how to apply this faithfully in our lives as Christ's disciples. So let's do that. Let's dig in. We're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able, we're going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12. And Matthew 5, 1 through 12 gives us a sort of setting and then the introduction to Jesus' sermon, which is called the Beatitudes. And we'll get into this a little bit. Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, Pierce our hearts with this wonderful word. Transform us to be a people who flourish. Transform us to be a community that gives a preview of heaven and on earth, of heaven on earth to this city. Transform us that we would be more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Have a seat. Well, Aristotle once said, happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. Is he right? Absolutely. Absolutely he's right. Now, some of you are looking at me like I'm Joel Osteen right now. Um, So please understand, by happiness, I'm not talking about, and Aristotle wasn't talking about, some sort of temporary, fleeting feelings of pleasure that we so often think of as happiness. I'm not talking about, you know, a life of Benjamins and, and Bentleys. By happiness, Aristotle meant, and I mean, a life of human flourishing, an abundant life, a life of depth and meaning and blessedness, a life of goodness and beauty and truth. 
A life of what in Jewish terms we might call shalom. Shalom, you know, it's often translated as peace, but shalom is much more than, than uh, merely uh, internal uh, tranquility or a lack of conflict. Shalom means the fullness of life in flourishing. That indeed is the aim and goal of our lives. It's actually the pursuit of every single, the, the highest pursuit of every single human being, every single religion, every single philosophy and worldview, every single marketing campaign. It's why people do CrossFit and buy essential oils or do a certain diet. It's why we buy certain clothes. It's why we do everything that we do. We want to be happy. We want to flourish. Jonathan Pennington, he wrote this, this wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. It's the best thing I've ever read on the Sermon on the Mount. And he also wrote this journal article on human flourishing, and he hit the nail on the head when he wrote these words in this journal article. He writes, human flourishing alone is the idea that encompasses all human activity and goals because there's nothing so natural and inescapable as the desire to live and to live in peace, security, love, health, and happiness. These are not merely cultural values or the desire of a certain people or time period, The desire for human flourishing motivates everything we humans do, both belief in religion and the rejection of it, monogamous marriage and a promiscuous lifestyle, waging war and making peace, studying history and creating art, planting fields and building skyscrapers. All human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing individually and corporately. And he's right. Deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, deep down in the very core of each and every human being, what we really and truly desire and long for is to live in a state of blessedness, happiness, flourishing, thriving, shalom. To live in a state of happiness, and not just a sort of temporary and fleeting sense of pleasure, but in a state of human flourishing. Indeed, that's what we were created for. That's what we see as we read Genesis 1 and 2, and that's why we ache and long for what we see there in Eden. We have this Edenic ache and longing in our souls. But it's not just what we were created for, it's what we've been redeemed for. Jesus said himself in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? In abundance. Jesus came that we would have abundant life. We live in a time and place wherein we are trained and programmed to think that happiness and freedom comes through what we might call expressive individualism. So you often hear phrases today, these are the sort of the slogans of expressive individualism. You hear things like, you be you, be true to yourself, follow your heart, find yourself. Those are the slogans of expressive individualism. And as a pastor in in Portland by the name of John Mark Comer described, the path to happiness, where, where happiness is found according to this ideology, is Doing whatever the heck you want, the freedom to do whatever the heck you want, that's the path to to human flourishing according to this ideology. To be your own master, to be your own Lord, eat whatever food I want, drink whatever drink I want, watch whatever media I want, have sex with whoever I want, spend my money however I want, be whatever gender I want, buy whatever goods I want, live in whatever city I want. The idea 
is that true and the, the true and happy me is on the inside waiting to get out and it's only prohibited by the oppressive circumstances I find myself in and the people around me who limit my potential. If I could only lay aside this job or this place that I live or this spouse or my children or my parents or my gender or whatever and finally be who I am on the inside, then I could be happy. The picture that might best describe this is, is if we think, we, we think that we have this beautiful self on the inside, that if we could only express what is truly deep inside, if we could only bloom and blossom like the flower we are on the inside, then, then we would have the good life. That's what the narrative of every Disney movie tells us. That, that's happiness in human flourishing according to expressive individualism, but if we could just be really honest for a moment, if we could be really honest about what that is actually leading to, there's never been a culture wherein people are more anxious, wherein people are more prone to outrage, where we struggle more deeply with depression and loneliness, where we There's never been a culture that struggled so much with a a poverty of meaning and depth, surrounded by by stuff and things, and we're chasing fleeting feelings of pleasure, doing whatever the heck we want, and it's not working. We're splintering and atomizing. And maybe we can try to distract ourselves through entertainment and social media and TV and looking at our phone for eight hours a day, but if we would just stop and take inventory of our lives, we'd realize this is not working. Rather than leading to a life of flourishing, it's leading to anxiety and loneliness and outrage and depression and death. It reminds me of something Brian told me about this last week. Several years ago, the Drake's went to Wright State to see this thing called a corpse flower. Have you heard of this? It's a super weird flower. I watched a video about it yesterday. It only blooms like every eight to ten years, and uh, it's really big. And uh, it's this big flower. There's a picture. There it is, the corpse flower. Uh, So it it, it blooms every eight to ten years, and when it finally blooms, it takes a long time, a lot of cultivation, takes a long time to bloom, and then it finally blooms, and it smells like a rotting corpse. It's very strange. It's hilarious to watch this video. I mean, the, the, the... the people would walk into this room and their faces were just so disturbed and, and disgusted. They, they said, uh, different people said it smelled like rotting meat. One person said it smelled like maggots and really smelly feet. Um, one person said it smelled like rotting flesh. They said it smelled like a corpse. That's a picture of what we're experiencing now. That's what happens when we pursue happiness and human flourishing through means of expressive individualism, when we do whatever the heck we want, thinking it will make us happy, but it just brings death and despair. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision and invitation to us into a life of true happiness and human flourishing. 
As Pennington wrote in his commentary on the sermon, he says that the sermon is Christianity's answer to the greatest metaphysical question that humanity has ever faced. How can we experience true human flourishing? What is happiness, blessedness, shalom, and how does one obtain it and sustain it? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's Jesus' answer to that question. It's Jesus' authoritative vision given, delivered to his disciples for how we can possess flourishing and happiness. But it's not what you would expect. It's not temporary fleeting feelings of pleasure. It's not based on circumstances and money and possessions, and it isn't realized through expressing self and doing whatever the heck we want. It's actually cross-shaped and difficult and requires submission to him as the Lord and master of our lives but it's good. It's good. So let's dig in. Look with me first at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. First, the teaching. Now, you might be wondering, why are we talking so much about happiness and human flourishing? You're looking at the sermon. Maybe your translation doesn't even say the word happy or human flourishing or anything like that. I don't see the words anywhere in this text. Well, the reason we're talking about happiness and human flourishing is because if you want to know what a sermon is about, you need to look at the introduction. That's where the sermon's direction is established and where its main idea is summarized in the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3 through 12, where Jesus says the Greek word makarios. Say makarios. Makarios, that's right. He says this word nine times. He repeats it nine times. Uh, and, 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 and what we often call Matthew 5, 3 through 12, uh, we call these the Beatitudes, okay? The word beatitude comes from the Latin word. I know I'm saying a bunch of words in other languages. Uh, the word beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus. And uh, they're often called beatitudes because the Greek word makarios is translated, uh, it's translated as blessed in our, in our ESV translation. It's translated as, you guessed, beatus in the Latin translation of the Bible. And what the Beatitudes give us is they paint a vision for what a truly happy and flourishing life looks like, and thereby it invites us into that way of life. Now, the word makarios, it's actually a difficult word to translate. Uh, the word blessed is in some translations, uh, and that's, that's good. Uh, other translations, uh, you might have a translation that says happy, Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Uh, others might translate it as fortunate. Uh, fortunate are the poor. Or others might actually translate it congratulations to the poor in spirit. Congratulations to those who mourn. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, in his own translation, uh, he, translate the word, he translates the word as flourishing. Flourishing. It's not that blessing is a bad translation, but happy, fortunate, congratulations, flourishing. Uh, these words help us to maybe get a fuller picture of what's going on here. Because when we see that word blessing, what often happens is this. Uh, we think that these are benedictions. We think that these are, are blessings. Uh, what we often call benedictions or blessings, you know, they're, they're biblical things. Uh, we actually, they're good things. We actually do a benediction, a blessing for the road at the end of every single gathering here. We see benedictions all over scripture. You know, number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. Uh, there's uh, 2 Corinthians 13, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, th that's a 
blessing. Those are blessings. A blessing is a pronouncement made over someone that is intended to bring about a specific good, okay? But that's not what a beatitude is. A beatitude is not a pronouncement of blessing over someone. A beatitude is a description of people in a state of well-being that invites us to their certain way of life. Okay, a beatitude is a description of people in a state of well-being that invites us into their certain way of life. Okay, so uh, like a modern beatitude is this. Uh, When millennials say, she's living her best life, right? That's the thing people say. I know that, right? So, okay, like say a celebrity, um, say Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian is vacationing on a yacht right outside of the Cayman Islands, okay? And I don't know if that's a place that she goes, but she's just, it's in the story, okay? Just bear with me. She's vacationing on a yacht right outside, right off the, the Cayman Islands, okay? And she posts a picture, a selfie, a selfie of her on this yacht drinking a fruity tropical cocktail and she's, it's beautiful weather out, and it's sunny, and she's on this million-dollar yacht. I don't know if that's how much yachts cost, but she has a Rolex on, and she's got a famous husband, and she's super rich, and she's on this awesome vacation, and she posts this picture, and what do the comments say? They say, she's living her best life, right? She's living her best life. It's a congratulatory description of someone in a perceived state of well-being. Okay, and there's also a certain invitation there, isn't there? There's a certain invitation. It's painting a picture of what the good life is, and it's supposed to create a desire in you to go on that vacation, uh, similar to her, go vacation on a yacht and drink fruity cocktails and be rich. So you start saving to go vacation on a yacht somewhere. That's a beatitude. Okay, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying the poor in spirit are living their best life because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, those in mourning are living their best life because they will be comforted. The meek are living, the gentle, the humble are living their best life because they're going to inherit and rule over the entire world. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the persecuted, are living their best life because of who I am, Jesus says, and what I came to do. Now, as you hear that, do you notice anything interesting about who Jesus says are the blessed, happy, flourishing, living their best life once? Is there anything interesting about all that? Yeah, the ones that he's saying are happy and blessed are not the ones you would expect, are they? According to Jesus here, the way into true happiness and human flourishing is low. The gate into true happiness and human flourishing is low and it's cross-shaped. Like, what we're invited into here is not to define living our best life like the world does. Vacations and nice homes and expensive meals and nice clothes and cool experiences. 
what we're invited into here is to be like Jesus. What we're invited into here, you know, Jesus, he is the one who is poor in spirit. He's the one who is humble and lowly. Jesus is the one who is meek and gentle. He's the peacemaker. He's the one persecuted for righteousness' sake and then prays for those who are persecuting him. And if we share with him in his crucifixion and sufferings, as the apostle says in Philippians 3.10, then we also share with him in the power of his resurrection life. In some measure now and in fullness when he returns. That's what we see in the Beatitudes. Okay, the way to true happiness and human flourishing is low and cross-shaped. But let's stop with the Beatitudes there because we're going to be in the Beatitudes for the next eight weeks. Let's also learn more about what the sermon tells us about happiness and human flourishing. Furthermore, like what we see as we look through the sermon, we see that according to Jesus, true happiness and human flourishing comes from what we might call living a life of whole person righteousness. Whole person righteousness. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says that the pure in heart are living their best life. Okay, he's talking about this idea of what we call whole person righteousness. He's, he's talking about this idea as well in, in Matthew 5.20. If you want to look at Matthew 5.20, Matthew 5.20, Jesus calls his disciples to live righteously with a righteousness that, he says, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, one thing you need, like, that would have been shocking, okay? Like, we think of Pharisees as the bad guys, but to the original hearers, they would have heard this and, like, Pharisees would have been heroes, uh, they were these like, they took righteous living and holy living very seriously. They sought to live lives of purity and holiness to such extremes that it would probably shock us. Okay, like they, they fasted all day, full fast, fasted twice a, uh, a week, two days a week. They prayed like four to six times every single day. No matter what they were doing, where they were, they would stop and they would pray at certain times throughout the day. They tithed every single last cent of their income and not only that, also of their possessions. They tithed, Jesus will tell us later in Matthew, the Pharisees tithed of their spice rack in their kitchens. I mean, like these guys were serious So what does Jesus mean by telling his disciples that he wants us to live with a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, he means this idea of whole person righteousness. He means that he wants the inner person, our hearts, to match this outer righteous behavior. So he says says in the sermon, he'll go on to say that we should not only refrain from murder, something the Pharisees did, But we're not even to let the root cause of murder, which is unjust anger and resentment and bitterness toward others, we're not to let that kind of disposition reign in our hearts. Okay, similarly, uh, Jesus will tell us that we're not only to not commit adultery as his disciples, something the Pharisees also refrained from, but we're to kill the root cause of idolatry in our hearts, lust. 
And then he'll go on in in chapter 7, he goes on to talk about loving our enemies. We're not only supposed to uh, love our neighbors and hate our enemies, as is often thought of, but then he says that we are to love our enemies as well and treat them as our brothers, treat them as our neighbors. And then we'll go on in chapter 7 to talk not just about obeying God's commandments from the heart, but also pursuing spiritual disciplines with right motivation. So we're not to only be committed to fasting and praying and giving money and, and those kinds of things, but we're to do so with a genuine motivation of honoring our Heavenly Father and helping our fellow man, not with motivation to be seen and praised as these uber-righteous and holy people. You see, Jesus is saying that true happiness, true human flourishing comes not just from being a people who behave in a certain kind of way, but by being a people who live habitually righteous lives with sincerity and genuineness of heart. That is whole person righteousness. And you might be thinking, yeah, right. There is no way I'd ever be able to live like that. I struggle deeply with anger and resentment. I struggle deeply with lust and pornography. I struggle deeply with wanting to be seen and praised by others. And this whole person righteousness thing, it's just not an option for me. I'm too messed up. And I would just tell you, don't be so fast to dismiss Jesus' teaching here. You know, there are people who have dismissed this sermon in a really clever way by chalking it up to Jesus presenting an impossible ideal that no one could ever attain to. And therefore, the sermon is just meant to sort of uh, show us how bad we are so that we'd confess our sins in humility and shame. Our beloved friend, Martin Luther, uh, he, he read the sermon that way. And many others have ever since. And of course, you know, this sermon, it does serve as an indictment against us because we don't always live according to God's will and design for us as it's revealed in the sermon. It does drive us to our knees in confession and sin, but I want you to see this morning that the sermon is not just an indictment which ought to lead us to our knees in confession of sin, but it is that, but it's more than that. It's an invitation into a life of happiness and flourishing, and Jesus is saying to you, his disciples, I actually want you to live this way way. I actually want you to live this way. And not only that, not only does he actually want us to live this way, but he actually is telling us that we can live this way. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, but characteristically, Jesus is saying, because of who I am and what I came to do, you can live a happy and flourishing life of whole person righteousness. It's not saying it'll be easy, You know, G.K. Chesterton once said, it's not that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. Christianity has been found difficult and not tried. Truly, the Christian life is not easy, but it's good. It is the way to true human flourishing, and it's made possible only in and through Jesus. Which brings us to our next point, the teacher. The teacher. You know, sermons, sermons are kind of a funny thing. Like, uh, I've greatly benefited from uh, a few different sermons from, from people I've never met in my life. Um, so the preaching of Tim Keller, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, Russell Moore, um, the, these, are, these are guys that I, I don't know them, but their sermons, their preaching has been a, a very potent and effective means of grace in my life. And I've never, I met Russell Moore once, but I don't know these guys. I don't, know, I don't know them, and I never will, not really. But this sermon 
The Sermon on the Mount, it's different. It's different because if you don't know the teacher, then the teaching will be of no transformative or redemptive value to you. You need to know the teacher. And so we also need to see what the sermon shows us about him. Look at verses one and two really quick. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, that seems simple enough, but there's something profound that Matthew is saying here that I don't, I don't want us to overlook. Like Matthew didn't just mention Jesus going up on the mountain because there were better acoustics there. No, he's, he's making a very important and profound statement about who this teacher is, who the teacher is of this sermon. And we'll just walk through three quick points. First, he's showing us that Jesus is the Moses-like prophet. So Moses said, you know, one day there's going to be a prophet like me who comes. You need to listen to him. He said he prophesied that in uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I don't remember where, sorry. So he's the Moses-like prophet. So think about the, the setting of the sermon. It takes place on a mountain. Now, in the ancient Near East, mountains were places of encounter with God. So mountains were where people encountered God. Uh, there were all sorts of important and sacred mountains in ancient Near Eastern religions, and it was no different for the Israelites. Uh, so think about all these important mountains in the Old Testament. There's Mount Moriah and Mount Carmel, Mount Zion, Bethel, Ararat, Pisgah, Gilead, and, and of course there's more. But there's one mountain in the Old Testament that might outshine all the others. Does anyone know what I might be thinking right now? Mount Sinai, that's right. So Mount Sinai is what? It's where the Israelites encountered God after the Exodus, after he, he rescued and redeemed them from slavery to Egypt. Okay, so after 400 years of God's people being in slavery in Egypt, that's four, like, think about that. 400 years, 400 years of people having their children taken away from them and murdered. 400 years of being beaten and poor and hungry and not knowing whether or not you were going to have food on the table. 400 years of being able to defend yourselves from violent assault on your body. 400 years of that. And the people were desperately crying out to God for, from, for redemption and rescue. And so God hears their cries and he raises up this guy named Moses. And God displays this awesome redemption through Moses. He rescues them through miracles and plagues. We read about this earlier in the, the call to worship. He rescues them through the blood of a lamb that is slain for them. He rescues them by parting the Red Sea so that they can walk through on dry land. And then he brings them out of Egypt and he sets them free. And once they're out of Egypt, God meets with his people on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he delivers the word of God to them, the law of God to them in order to make them a community that reflects his character and holiness. It's, this is where God spoke to his people directly and delivered the Ten Commandments to them. That's where they spent a good long time from Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers 10 worshiping and encountering God. It's where God delivered much of Exodus and, and Leviticus and, and Numbers to the Israelites through Moses. It was the mountain where God's people encountered God and where he delivered the law of the old covenant to them. Now, in light of that, think about what Matthew is saying when he says that Jesus climbs this mountain to deliver this sermon. 
He's saying, this is the authoritative word of God coming from the lips of Jesus. This is the place where he is going to deliver a word, a new word that will create a new community that reflects the life and righteousness of their king. It's the Moses-like prophet. But I also want us to see there's some significant differences too. So, It's different from Mount Sinai in some significant ways. Jesus is more than the Moses-like prophet. The sermon reveals that Jesus possesses not just delegated divine authority to proclaim God's word. Jesus possesses inherent divine authority. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The sermon is claiming that. You know, on, on, on Mount Sinai, God, Yahweh, the Lord, delivered his word through Moses. Moses would get up and he would say, thus says the Lord. Or, or it, God would say to Moses, say this to the people. And Moses would get up and say, thus says the Lord. And he would deliver the word of the Lord to them. Notice, that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus opens his mouth and teaches them. And he doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, Matthew 5.18, I say to you. Matthew 5.22, I say to you. Matthew 5.28, I say to you. 5.32, I say to you. 5.34, and so on. You get the picture. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, I say to you. And then at the end of the sermon, it says that the crowds were astonished because he was teaching as one with authority, meaning Jesus teaches it as one with inherent divine authority. In other words, Matthew is telling us that the encounter on this mountain is a direct encounter with God himself. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And then the last thing you need to see concerning what these verses show us about the teacher of the sermon. It's not just that he's like, he's the Moses-like prophet and he possesses inherent divine authorities, Emmanuel. We also see that the teacher is the savior. We see that he's the mediator of God's new and promised covenant. We see this if we look at another contrast between Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount. The contrast of of where the people are during these encounters. So if you'll remember, we we looked at Exodus 19 and uh, Exodus 20 um, several years ago, but but do you guys remember, where were the people during that encounter? Do you know where the people were? Anyone? They weren't on the mountain. In fact, in Exodus 19, God says, don't let anyone come to the mountain or touch the mountain because my holiness will break out and kill them. And if anyone does touch the mountain, don't even touch that person, just shoot them with an arrow or stone them. Like they weren't allowed on the mountain. But then he says, okay, but after a few days, after a, day, a few days of consecration, then the people can join me on the mountain. But then what happens in Exodus 20? The people go, no thanks. Like they don't, Exodus twenty eighteen says that the people stood at a distance, trembling with fear. They refused to go up on the mountain because the presence of God, they found the presence of God so dreadful because of his purity and holiness. He was so good and so, they were so rotten that they didn't want to come near him. You know, here's the thing. They had been taken out of Egypt, but Egypt hadn't been taken out of them yet. 
Okay, I mean, I mean, we even see what are they doing while Moses is up on the mountain? They're down there having orgies and worshiping a, a statue, a golden calf. The idea of drawing near to God was dreadful to them because they loved their sin and wretchedness more than they loved him. Well, look at what happens on the Sermon on the Mount. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Matthew, he wants us to see that like Mount Sinai, this is God delivering his authoritative word to us to create, in order for us to be made into a community that reflects his character and holiness. But unlike Sinai, now, because of who this teacher is and what he came to do, we can draw near. We can be in his presence and actually ourselves be filled with his life and presence. Now, in this new and better covenant, we can draw near to God. Listen, this invitation to whole person righteousness and human flourishing is not an invitation to a more disciplined moralism. The Pharisees had that, and it wasn't working. They were super disciplined and super moral. So what Jesus is saying here is not, come grit your teeth and try really hard to be a good person. No, it's an invitation to come and be transformed by his grace and presence. It's an invitation to hand your life over to him and let you fill you with his life by the presence of the Holy Spirit so that you can be made new down to the core of who you are. My friends, the reason that this sermon can be a reality in our life as a community is because we can draw near to the one who preached it. And the reason that we can draw near to the one who preached it is because he not only climbed this mountain to deliver this sermon, but he climbed Mount Golgotha to deliver us that we might live this sermon. He is the better Exodus, the better Moses, the better Passover lamb. He came not just to deliver us and redeem us and rescue us from slavery in Egypt, but he came to rescue and redeem and deliver us from the Egypt within. That's one of the huge ongoing problems in the Exodus story. They were rescued from Egypt, but they still had Egypt within. They were still enslaved to sin. They weren't enslaved to Pharaoh anymore, but they were enslaved to sin. Down there having orgies, worshiping in a statue. And what do we see them do while they're traveling through, through uh, traveling Moses onto the promised land? Constantly complaining, wanting to go back to Egypt. Finally, in Deuteronomy 10, Moses, he gets fed up and he says straight up, you guys are stubborn and hard-hearted. You don't just need God's law written on stone tablets and pieces of parchment. You need God's law written on your hearts. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came to transform us so that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we can rest assured that he did it, that he accomplished it because he climbed Golgotha. And he did so not to experience flourishing and shalom and life in that moment but to experience brokenness and torture and death. And he did that so that we might be reconciled to him, so that we could draw near to him. And then he rose again on the third day. He rose so that his resurrection life might break into this present evil age and so that his resurrection life would break into our broken and shattered and divided lives. 
so that we'd be given grace and power to be a people of flourishing and whole person righteousness so that we might live this authoritative vision for human flourishing delivered to us in this sermon. Not perfectly, not flawlessly, but characteristically, habitually, and progressively so that we might be continuously transformed to be more and more like Christ our Lord. You need to know the teacher. You need to be his disciple. Which brings us to the last point, the taught. The taught. The disciples of Jesus are the ones who are taught. Notice, they're the ones who come to him. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. See how Moses, or Matthew rather, is, is making somewhat of a distinction between the disciples and the crowds here? The crowds were there, they were present. We even see that at the end of the sermon that they were listening to what Jesus was teaching because they were astonished at his teaching and authority. But there's a distinction between the disciples and the crowds here. The crowds may be impressed by Jesus, they may be interested in Jesus, they may be astonished by Jesus, but the disciples are those who have made a disciplined commitment to follow Jesus, and so they're the ones that come to him. What does disciple mean? You know, a a synonym for the word disciple could be apprentice. They are Jesus' life apprentices. It's someone who follows Jesus to learn the way of Jesus, to learn how to do life from Jesus. To learn, to, let me tell you, you want to be a disciple. You want to be a disciple. You don't want to be a crowd. You don't want to be someone who's merely impressed by Jesus or interested in Jesus or even astonished by Jesus. You want to be truly happy and flourish as a human being. Therefore, you want to be a disciple. Now, how does one become a disciple of Jesus? That's a good question because he's ascended the right hand of God. So, you know, it's not like we could just move to Palestine today and find him and start following him around as these folks did. So how do we follow Jesus today? I think Ray Ortland illustrates this wonderfully. So I'm just going to read his description and illustration of how to follow Jesus, and then we'll close. This is what he says. He writes, You and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. Picture this. There's a boardroom in every heart, big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, whiteboard. A committee sits around the table. There is the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. The committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can it come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we have so many responsibilities. The truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, unfree. That kind of person can follow Jesus in either of two ways. One is to invite him into the, onto the committee and give him a vote too. But then he just becomes one more complication, right? The other way is to follow Jesus. The other way to follow Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them, 
I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. That's what it looks like to become a disciple. That's actually what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. It means to come to him and to say, I've made a mess of my life. My life is not working. I've completely blown it. That's why the poor in spirit are those who are truly happy. Those who just know, I've blown it. Please run my life for me. My friends, if you do that, Jesus will put the broken pieces of your life together and he will make you whole. He will make you happy. He will make you flourish. It's not to say he'll take all your problems away. In fact, what we read in the Beatitudes, you're probably actually going to have more problems. Life will actually become increasingly more difficult for you. But the happy life, the flourishing life, the abundant life doesn't consist of having a life free of problems. It doesn't consist of having a life full of money and possessions. It doesn't consist of doing whatever the heck you want. It doesn't consist of having temporary and fleeting feelings of pleasure. It consists of possessing Jesus and his resurrection life within you. He came that you might have life and have it in abundance in measure now, and in fullness in the age to come. So over the next six months, that's the attitude, the disposition I want us to have. Jesus, our our way isn't working. Have your way. Our lives are yours. And if we approach the Sermon on the Mount with that kind of disposition, I'm sure we will be amazed at what he's going to do. We'll be happier than we've ever been will be a better preview of heaven on earth as a community than we can even imagine. will be a place and a people wherein we show the city of Dayton what Jesus' vision of human flourishing looks like, and it will be attractive and beautiful, and it will be good. So let's accept his invitation to live according to his authoritative vision of human flourishing. Let's pray. Father, pierce and penetrate our hearts with the words of Jesus this morning that we might be transformed to be a happy, flourishing people who possess Christ, who possess the kingdom forevermore. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.